Well, good evening, everyone. Good to see you. It's a privilege to be here with you this evening to open once again the Word of God. I pray to our edification to be built up and even conviction where the Word of God exposes sin. That's a good thing. We need that because it's God's way of working in us, His grace and that work of sanctification which we all need. In the last message, you may recall, in God's names and scriptures, we had looked at, at the word El Elyon, meaning the strong and the strongest one, the one, the most high God, the possessor of heaven and earth, who does what he will among the nations of men. Tonight we consider another name from the passage we're going to read. We're going to read the entirety of Genesis chapter 16. If you would please follow along. Genesis 16, this is the word of the living God. And now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne to him no children. And she had an Egyptian maidservant whose name was Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, See now, the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. Please, go into my maid. Perhaps I shall obtain children by her. And Abram heeded the voice of Sarai. And then Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian, and gave her to her husband, Abram, to be his wife, after Abram had dwelt ten years in the land of Canaan. And so he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress became despised in her eyes. Then Sarai said to Abram, My wrong be upon you. I gave my maid into your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, I became despised in her eyes. The Lord judge between you and me. And so Abram said to Sarah, Indeed, your maid is in your hand. Do to her as you please. And when Sarai dealt harshly with her, she fled from her presence. And now the angel of the Lord found her by the spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to shore, and he said, Hagar, Sarai's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? And she said, I am fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarai. And the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit yourself under her hand. And then the angel of the Lord said to her, I will multiply your descendants exceedingly so that they shall not be counted for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are with child, and you shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has heard your affliction. He shall be a wild man. His hand shall be against every man, and every man's hand against him, and he shall dwell in the presence of all his brethren. And then she called the name 
of the Lord who spoke to her, You are the God who sees. For she said, Have I also seen him who sees me? And therefore the well was called Bir Lahai Roy. Observe, it is between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram named his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. And Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. May God bless the reading of this, his holy, his infallible, and yes, his inerrant word. Well, we look at this name, literally, that means the God who sees, El Roy, as we meet this in the 16th chapter of Genesis. You know, correctional officials in many states keep track of nonviolent criminals without having to keep them in prison today. It's quite common. They place the offender under a form of house arrest and they get him an advanced electronic device for surveillance. It's called an ankle brace for most of them. And it's worn by him, it's supposed to be, at all times, so they can keep track of him. And it triggers an alarm. If he's trying to leave home early or go out of the bounds that he's supposed to stay within, or tampering with the device, even trying to remove it, one offender actually said of the device, I don't feel like I'm in jail, but I do feel like I'm being watched. In one sense, that's how we all should feel. Whether in prison, on the street, at work, at home, we are all being watched. Even when there's no police car in sight or no surveillance, camera in the store, we are constantly being watched by God. I always remember that vividly as a child from the earliest period. I knew that God was watching me at all times. Of course, often I felt guilty because I knew I wasn't doing what's right before the God whose eye was upon me. But that was a good thing. It never left me, even in great times of darkness. And as I think I've even shared with you here, you know, if you'd asked me any time in my life, before I was converted, if I died where I'd be, I said, I'd be in hell. Because God sees me. God knows what I've been doing. God knows I'm far from him. And I'm not honored his holy name. Well, God sees us in our sinful condition. That's very clear from Scripture. The story here is probably familiar to most of you. I'm not going to go into the details of the ethics of Abraham taking his maid, or Sarah's maid, as his wife, and all that transpired. That's not the point of the message this evening, and even the passage, I think, has a greater message than that, and the deal with that. But uh, God had promised to give, give Abraham a son. It's, it's about that, especially. It is covenant theology here that we are seen worked out in the experience of Sarah, who was given that promise from God to have a child, and Abraham as well. And Hagar has a part in that in a certain sense. 
and that uh, what was promised to Abram, who would become Abraham, was that through him a great nation would be a blessing to all the peoples of the earth. He said, literally, in you all the peoples of the earth shall be blessed. And of course, Abram had his name changed to be Abraham to remind him of that. Ham, the addition of that word to his name, means a people, a nation. Abram, his father, he's the father of this nation. And rightly so, many people called Abraham their father. Because you can't truly do that, of course, unless you have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's very clear. Paul's very clear in Romans in dealing with the Jews who thought otherwise. But Abraham needed to keep covenant with God. And when he left the Ur of the Chaldees and was moving along, up along the Euphrates and into the land of Canaan, he departed from all his kindred, all his, kin, all his kinsmen, and settled down in the place in, that God had given him. And the years passed, though, and as we read in this passage, Sarah did not have a child. It had been some ten years. And uh, Abram had become very discouraged and felt that God perhaps might be breaking his promise, that he was not able to fulfill it, or whatever the reason. So he and Sarah stooped to, you know, some have called it even a heathen expediency. It was practice in that culture. Men could take their maidens of, of their wives and their maids and their slaves and so forth. Of course, it was even common among some in Israel. And so this transpired. Sarah wanted a child desperately, so she gave her, her servant maid, her slave maid, to bear a child by her husband, Abram. She made that proposal to him, and obviously he agreed. And when Abram complied with the suggestion, and Hagar, the slave girl, discovered that she was to be the mother of Abram's child, we learn that Hagar became insolent in her attitude towards Sarah. She no longer was a, perhaps a humble servant, a humble slave, a humble maid. The scripture tells us that she despised Sarah in her eyes. And Sarah could see that. You can tell when somebody's looking at you and they, they greatly you know, find you uh, unpleasing in their sight, so to say, or even reprehensible, perhaps. And then we go on to read, we, we turn to read, I should say, in verses 5 through 9, that Sarah says to Abram, My wrong be upon you. I gave my maid into your embrace, and when she had saw that I had conceived, I became despised in her eyes. The Lord, Jehovah, judge between you and me. She was not happy about this. But there was rebuke in those words. For Hagar had forgotten that she was just a slave girl. And in her insolence had brought upon her this wrath from Sarai. And now the Lord bids her, though, as he comes to her in the wilderness, to go back to her mistress. We read that in the latter part in verses 10 through 13, where the angel of the Lord appears to her, the angel of Jehovah. It's a very special event. 
when the angel of Jehovah God appeared to someone in Scripture. And this is significant. And he calls her back. And he, he says, I will multiply your descendants exceedingly so that they shall not be counted for multitude. A great number. Much like the blessing given to Abraham and promised to him. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are with child and you bear a son. You're going to name him Ishmael, a man. Because the Lord has heard your affliction. You know, we, we could have titled this sermon, you know, The God Who Sees and Cares for the Outcast. Because then we do see that here. He had concern for Hagar, even in the midst of this immorality, if you will, in this circumstance, perhaps that she was greatly taken advantage of. I you imagine Abraham was a notable person, a man of great significance and of power and authority. And then God comes to her, though, and gives him the promise of this child. Then she responds this way. She called the name of the Lord, the name of Jehovah, who spoke to her, you are the God who sees, El Roy. For she said, I also here have seen him who sees me. Perhaps Agar could understand being interested in Abraham, but Abraham was rich and powerful, as they said, and he was influential. He had many friends. But why would God be mindful of her? A poor, friendless, homeless slave girl forced out of her mistress' home, dying here in the wilderness. I think she is amazed that God would have anything to do with her. All her life, Coming out of Egypt, what had she been doing? She was an idolater. She was staring at stony-faced Egyptian idols, if you will, who brought her no comfort, never opened her mouth to speak to her. And yet now, the angel of the Lord appears in this marvelous way to give her comfort and a promise with this child. Back in Egypt, they never reached out to her, these gods. They're made of stone. They're deaf to the cry of anyone who would stand before them. Even some of the prophets, the recordings, mocked them for this. And they're idols. They're dumb. They can't speak. They can't hear. They're blind. They can't see. But this is the living God who has come to Hagar. And how precious it must be to her that our God is the God who sees and saw her in her plight, in a sense being cast out, not knowing where her life would end. In Genesis 16, 13, this is the only occurrence in the Bible that I'm aware of that I could find of Elroy. And it's from the lips of Hagar that God reveals himself this way. Think again about her situation. She was removed from family, from friends. She was alone. It wasn't her people. She was an Egyptian. Away from shelter, food, water, help, sustenance. She's out in the wilderness. 
I've stood on the edge of the Sahara, and I've never experienced anything like it in my life. It felt like it could suck your soul right out of your body, your, your life right out of you. It was so vast and open with nothing but sand, sand, and sand. And this is where she was. God sees our heartaches, our struggles. He knows. And the Lord spoke to her and appeared to her and rescued her. And then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees. For she said, Have I also here seen him who sees me? God sees us, beloved. And that's what we need to draw from this. We can feel mighty destitute in this life with struggles. Now, I grew up in the Midwest and quite used to snowstorms and blizzards and what we would call whiteouts. I see you smiling, Jenny. You know what I'm talking about. <laughs> and there was a little boy once going, wanted to go to a birthday party, and sure enough, it's snowing. And it can really snow. You know, we start talking about inches an hour, you know. And his dad said, oh, I don't know if I want you to go. It's, it's a blizzard out there. The roads are impassable. And the youngster was pleading. He wanted to go to this birthday party. And he said, but dad, you know, pleaded. All the other kids will be there. That's the refrain, right? You know, you got to be with those other kids. And their parents will let them go. You know, and the father thought for a minute. And he re replied softly, okay, you may go. And so surprised but overjoyed, the boy bundled up and plunged out into the raging storm. The driving snow made visibility almost impossible. And it took him more than a half an hour to trudge what normally would have been just a short distance of a few blocks or more. And as he rang the doorbell, something very interesting transpired. He turned briefly to look out into the storm and his eye caught the shadow of a retreating figure. It was his father, who had followed him every step of the way to make sure his son made it there. God is far greater than any earthly father in seeing us in all of our struggles, all of the difficulties we face in this life, and they can be great and many you know, at times we may face great sickness and illness, death in our family, you know, financial disaster, whatever it may be. Love that ends, that you thought would last forever in human relationships. But God's love is forever. He is the God who sees He's the God who cares. And we learn that from Hagar. He sees us in our difficult situations. In Genesis 31, we read these words where Jacob spoke to his father-in-law, Laban, in reviewing the years that he had served him. We read in Genesis 31, verses 38 through 42. These 20 years, I have been with you. Your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried their young, and I have not eaten the rams of your flock. 
That which was torn by the beast I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it. You required it from my hand, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. There I was, and the day the drought consumed me, and the frost by night. And my sleep departed from my eyes, and thus I've been in your house twenty years. I served you fourteen years with your two daughters, and six years for your flock. And you have changed my wages ten times. And I don't think they were a raise either, if you study closely. He goes on to say, Unless the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac had been with me, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God has seen my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. You see, Jacob had a a wretched time of it those 20 years. His father-in-law had cheated him in the first marriage with his first wife. Jacob had served seven years to earn the wife he loved, Rachel. And when the wedding was over and the bride took off her veil, he was discovered that he had been married to Leah by deceit, her older sister. And when he resented this deception, Laban told him that he would work another seven years if he wanted to have the girl he loved. Boy, he must have really loved her because he did. So now, 20 years of conflict and strife and deception and bitter bargaining between the two had begun. And Jacob wanted to go back to the land that he'd fled from years before. The land that God had given to him and his seed forever. Remembering that covenant promise. And he bade farewell to Laban with the word that unless the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac had been with me, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God has seen my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. There will be times in your lives, if you live long enough, some of you have, where you'll feel like you've been deserted by everyone. And it's just you and the Lord. And I know I've said in my own prayers to the Lord, saying, Lord, Heavenly Father, you know my heart in this, like no one else can. I trust you. If I am wrong, show me. If I'm right, vindicate me if it is your will. What, whatever, keep me faithful to you. Whether men stand with us or not, whether our circumstances good or not, doesn't change God's love for us. His care for us. He's a covenant-keeping God. There's never been a time when the child of God is so oppressed and so abused and so neglected or so hated that our God, El Roy, does not see us in our hour of affliction. In fact, especially at those times, we can say He sees us. When you hear the cry of a child, you, one of your children, you can pick that voice out of a crowd. I always remember The children grow up. Nothing stabbed my heart more than hearing the cry of one of my children. 
especially when they were being abused by their brother, you know. <laughs> but we have a similar use of this characteristic of our God in Exodus 3. Moses, for 40 years, had been tending sheep in the backside of the wilderness when he fled from the wrath of Pharaoh. We read in Exodus 3, 1 through 8, Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the back of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire in the midst of a bush. So he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. And then Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight. Why the bush bush does not burn. So when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. He said, do not draw near this place. Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows, so I have come down to deliver them. That's Elroy, the God who sees and the God who cares. It appears that Moses thought that God didn't see the plight of his people, as though God didn't care. The persecution had begun even before Moses' birth and had continued all through the first 40 years of his life. As he was growing up as a prince in the household of Pharaoh himself, that persecution had enslaved the people of Israel. And had taken from them all the hope of joy and peace in life. Pharaoh's grueling persecution made their lives most miserable under such bondage. But note, God says in verse 7, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. You see, Satan would have us think that God doesn't see what we go through. God doesn't feel our pain, doesn't hear our cries, doesn't know our circumstances, too busy to care. That's not our God. Our God is Elroy. He sees all. He's omniscient. He knows all. He's omnipresent. He's with us always. Oh, this is our God. He's heard their cry. And because of their taskmasters, I know their sorrow. I come down to deliver them. There are times when it it appears that God has forgotten his people. Times when we may think that he doesn't see, he doesn't care. And we wonder if he concerns himself with the affairs of our lives. Sometimes it's ourselves where we feel distant from God because we have been. If we're not drawing close to him, He says, draw near unto me, and I will draw near unto you. But if we're not speaking to him in prayer or hearing him speak to us in his word or attending upon worship together with his people, we dry up. And you will feel far from God. 
draw nigh unto the Lord. Moses drew nigh unto that burning bush, and God met him there. Let's always remember he is El, Roy, the God who sees, the God who saw his nation being ground under the heel of oppression of the proud pharaohs. And he saw a homeless girl, outcast, a dying slave girl in the wilderness. Sometimes he ordains the trouble goes on for a while. He chastens his people because they've turned their backs on him or disobeyed him. But he's not indifferent ever to the suffering of his children. And his ears are not deaf to their cry. He is El Roy, the God who sees. This very thing is clearly brought out to us to the letters in the seven churches of Asia Minor as well, found in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. These letters are from the risen Christ to the seven churches. The book of Revelation is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And it begins, each of these letters to the seven churches, reminding us that our God is a God who sees. Sometimes he may not like what he sees, (laughs) but he sees all. And I want to end with this point, is that Christ Jesus is El Roy, the God who sees and cares. That's what's revealed here. In the first chapter of Revelation, the Lord Jesus described as John saw him in his glory with eyes like a flame of fire, Eyes that pierce and penetrate, from whom nothing is hid. So there's no trouble through which his people pass, of which he's not conscious. We read in Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, And you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not. And have found them liars. And you have persevered. And have patience. And have labored for my name's sake. And have not become weary. There was nothing about the church of Ephesus that the Lord did not know. He beheld it all. And there's no toil, no service, no suffering, no persecution that they had gone through, that the risen Christ in glory did not see. He saw it all because he is El Roy. Again in verses 8 through 10 of chapter 2, and to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things says the first and the last who was dead and came to life. I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you be tested, and you will have tribulation in ten days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. We also see his foreknowledge as well as his predestination. Those are great doctrines. 
to bless us and to comfort us. That God knows all our goings and comings. He knows the past, the present, and the future. And he ordains whatever comes to pass for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. No persecution was to come to them, but was known to the Christ in glory. Revelation 2, 12 and 13. He writes to the church in Pergamos and says, To the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things says he who has a sharp two-edged sword. I know your works and where you dwell and where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith. He knew all about their faithfulness. He knew all about the opposition of the evil one. He knows where they live. He knows where you live, you see. Revelation 2, 18 and 19. He writes to the church in Thyatira and says, To the angel of the church in Thyatira, write these things, says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. What an intimate knowledge our God has of us, his people. There's no service that his people render, not even a cup of cold water that is given in his name that he does not see. His eyes are on his people through every hour of testing and trial and trouble and difficulty. I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Satan's not more powerful than God. Even Satan is working out God's purposes. You have to believe that. If God is absolutely sovereign, Look how he had to come and bid God to do anything against his servant Job. He doesn't have free reign over us to do whatever he will, but God does. Elroy does, but he sees us and cares for us. Now as well, beloved, in application, Jeremiah 7, 9 through 11, God speaks to the prophet excuse me, speaks by the prophet to the people of Judah and says, will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, burn incense to Baal, and walk after other gods whom you do not know, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say we are delivered from all these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of thieves in your eyes? Behold, I, even I, have seen it, says the Lord. We can't deceive God by a few high-sounding words spoken in an hour of worship. We can't cover up our sins and iniquities of our daily lives and hide them from Him behind an empty profession of faith and allegiance? 
David clearly stated this fact in Psalm 139, verses 7 through 12. He said, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall guide me and hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall fall upon me, even the night shall be light around me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide you from me. But the night shines as day, the darkness and the light are both alike to you. Wow, what a glorious, glorious description of our God. And his beautiful attributes. There's no hiding from our God. All our secret sins are displayed in the light of his countenance. It is this tremendous truth that he is El Roy, the God who sees. That's what's stressed in Hebrews 4.11 when it's written, Let us be diligent to enter the rest. The rest that God promises to those who trust in Jesus. He says, The Jesus who says, Come unto me, all ye who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me. Learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. So let's be diligent to enter that rest. Press on in following Jesus. Though you may fall down a thousand times, let your falling wake you up to a promise that he will pick you up and cleanse you from all your sins. Amen. Keep turning to him. Don't ever stop turning to him. Israel knew all about the promises of God when they were in the wilderness. But they fell in the wilderness because of their unbelief. That's the great sin that slams the door of everlasting life and forgiveness. So we harden our hearts against God himself. For the word of God, the oath of God that shuts men out of that rest because of unbelief, is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. This oath of God is sharper than any surgeon's scalpel. And it performs a very delicate operation that we need. It distinguishes between soul and the realm of emotion and Affection and spirit, the realm of, of God and our consciousness and reason. There's such a thing as religion that it's all in the realm of the soul. That's all emotional. But the word of God, the oath of God that shuts men out of rest, is because of unbelief. and distinguishes between mere emotion and true devotion to God. It pierces the dividing of the soul and spirit asunder. A discerner of the thoughts and intents of the hearts. That's what we're told. And there's no creature hidden from his sight. But all things 
are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Hebrews 4, 12 and 13. All things, all laid bare and are illuminated by this one whose eyes are a flame of fire. And we have to do with him. We can't avoid him. We can't evade him. Sooner or later, we're going to appear before him. We're either going to meet him as his children in infinite grace or meet him as those who have refused and trample underfoot his offer of pardon. It's one or the other. The Lord is revealed to us as Elroy, the God who sees. In fact, every one of the Old Testament names for God finds reflection in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he is the God of the Old Testament. Not two different gods. He was manifested in the flesh upon earth almost 2,000 years ago. But to be the Son of God is to be very God of very God. He sees. He sees us when homeless, forsaken, despised, hated, wronged, dying, wandering in the wilderness. We, like Hagar, must cry out, Elroy, you are the living God. Who sees me? Strip away all hypocrisy and sham. And if need be, send me in the wilderness that it will be stripped away. So that I know, O oh God, that I trust only in you and you alone. We have great difficulty in this land. We are consumed by things. Material things we allow to destroy our souls and our spiritual lives. The quest for things which are empty. Empty. Our quest is to seek first the kingdom of God. And all those things will be added to you as you need them. But seek God first. That's what we must do. The oath of God shuts men out because of unbelief. Is as active today as when he shut the children of Israel out of the promised land at Kadesh Barnea, saying, So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Hebrews 4.3 For it's still true. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. And he who does not believe the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God abides on him. Those are the great, great points of, if you will, the watershed of life. One way or the other. Follow Christ to the world. The broad way is the world. The narrow way is to follow Jesus. But oh, the difference. The end thereof is everlasting life. The other end is everlasting damnation and destruction. Let us hold this message forth clearly to this generation. They're confused about these things. Confused about a God who sees all, knows all. A God they have to stand for one day. Stand before one day. Every man, woman, and child that ever took a breath we gathered before him on that great day. Let's join together and pray that the Lord would make us to be those who trust in him with all our heart, mind, soul, body, and strength. Let's pray. Oh God.
we commit ourselves unto the Lord Jesus Christ. Elroy, our God who sees us and loves even while we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Christ, you died for us when we were yet sinners. Oh, what hope there is for mankind. He is that blessed hope that we look for to return to his people. Lord, let us hold that hope to this generation. They need Jesus more than ever. Oh God, our Savior, hear us as well. When we come in faith, confessing our sins, believing you will forgive and cleanse us from all our sins through your precious, precious blood that blood which secured the everlasting covenant. Hallelujah, what a Savior you are. Oh, we lift up your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.